So when I was a kid, I loved reading. And there were a lot of, there's a lot of fun kids series. And uh, I suppose I'm rather uh, typical, you know, all the, all the normal series, you know, the kids like, I liked them. One of them, I don't know if, you've, if you're familiar, uh, parents, with uh, the Encyclopedia Brown books, right? So kind of like a, a kid detective who is uh, trying to figure out, uh, you know, he's got a bully neighbor and, and he's always, his bully neighbor's always trying to pull a fast one and Encyclopedia Brown always figures out the, the thing that's going on and, and jumps in to save the day and to stop the bully neighbor from, from bullying. And uh, the whole trick of the, the stories is if you can try and figure out what the puzzle is before Encyclopedia Brown figures out the puzzle. And of course, you know, at the end of the story, you flip to the back of the book and it reveals the, the solution. A bunch of riddles. Riddles, like uh, this isn't one of those riddles, but a riddle, you've heard the riddle, uh, two fathers and two sons go out fishing. Each one catches a fish and only three caught fish were caught. How? How? Grandfather, father, son, two fathers, two sons. So riddles like this. I, I've always loved little riddles like this. In our, in our text this morning, the disciples of Jesus come across a riddle, a puzzle that they don't know how to solve. They see an empty tomb where their Lord had been lain, and they don't think that they have any clues to try and figure out this puzzle. But the response of the disciples to the puzzle, as they figure out what's going on, their response to the puzzle is the point of our story. This morning, we're going to learn that when we encounter this puzzling, this mysterious, this miraculous testimony of the empty tomb and the risen Savior, this story calls us to look to our Savior in faith, with love, and with devotion we look to the testimony of Scripture, not skeptically, as though this were all just kind of a dubious tale. We look in faith. We look trusting that though we do not see the risen Jesus with our own physical eyes, the testimony of these disciples is true. Let's consider the text together. Open your Bibles with me to John chapter 20. John chapter 20 and John sets the scene for us in verses 1 and 2. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they have laid him. So that's the puzzle. There's your riddle. Notice, we actually do have a couple pieces to the puzzle. First of all, we have the first day of the week. Now, a number of people have pointed out how surprising it is that not just the Apostle John, but actually each of the writers of the Gospels, they tell us not that it is the third day after the crucifixion that Mary goes to the garden. Instead, it's the first day of the week. The point of reference, we would think, the point of reference is this horrendous event that just happened in chapter 19, the crucifixion of Jesus. But actually, the point of reference is the first day of the week. 
It's a new week. Something new is about to happen. The point of reference is not the cross. Whatever happens on this first day of the week is about to begin something new. So Mary comes to the tomb while it is still early and still dark. It seems that Mary Magdalene is as much in the dark about what's going on in the garden as the garden is in the dark from the early morning. Mary thinks that she's coming to the tomb to pay her respects to Jesus, as anyone who's in mourning would do. Imagine the shock. When she arrives in the garden, she finds that the stone has been taken away from the tomb. Resurrection is not even on her radar. Her mind immediately goes to the worst possible scenario. They have taken his body. Now think about it. Here's Jesus, a respected, wonder-working rabbi, perhaps even the Messiah. And he has been defiled and murdered as a common criminal. His body had been placed in the tomb of a rich man. And it would be just like the religious leaders to find this kingly burial of Jesus too good for Jesus. It would be just like the religious leaders to defile Jesus even in his death. In Mary's mind, it would fit the narrative for the body of Jesus to be taken from the tomb of the rich man and unceremoniously dumped in a pile of pauper's remains. And so Mary does what any normal person would do in this situation. She relieves the tension of the day with an early morning run. She goes running. She's not running casually, but she's running frantically to Peter and John. And she tells them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they have laid him. Now, the synoptic gospels tell us that Mary had gone to the garden in the first place with several other women. And we see that reflected here in our text in John. We do not know where they have laid him. So now we have the main characters for our puzzle. The main characters for this first resurrection scene. And we have the location. Here we have an empty tomb. We have Mary and Peter and John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And John the Apostle intends to show you and me what an encounter with the risen Christ should look like, not only for Mary, Peter, and John, but for each one of us as well. You see, in John's account, Peter, Mary, and John all represent us and how we respond to the news of the resurrected Jesus. The purpose of this account is not to present us with the fact of the resurrection. Paul did that in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. John is not aiming for our intellect. He's not aiming for our head. He's aiming for our affections. He's aiming for our heart. Now, we get to the heart through the head. So don't imagine that this story of the resurrection is a fairy tale. But John doesn't want to simply fill our heads with facts. He wants to form our hearts with faith. So consider the first, the response of Peter and John. We read in verses 3 to 10, Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. 
Stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' side, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in. And he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. So John is introducing the evidence, if you will. So far, all we have is this puzzle of an empty tomb with nothing really to go on to make sense of this puzzle. Now, like Mary uh, a few minutes earlier, now Peter and John also go out for an early morning run. It's hard to tell if Peter knew that it was a race, but evidently John was feeling competitive because he tells us that he outran Peter, got to the tomb first. Now notice what it is that John sees when he arrives at the tomb. He says he saw the linen cloths lying there. What does that tell us? Well, let's go on. Peter arrives at the tomb moments later. Apparently he wasn't wearing Nikes, he was wearing his Adidas and they just didn't work out as well. And like Peter, like his impetuous style, he goes barging into the tomb to see what's inside. And once he gets inside, he sees not only the linen cloths that are lying there, but also the face cloth folded up by itself over here on the side. Those are the facts. Those are the pieces of the puzzle. Now, if Mary's fears had been correct, that the body of Jesus had been moved, what would have been found in the tomb? Do you remember the raising of Lazarus back in John chapter 11? In John chapter 11, and in verses 43 and 44, we read this. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! Now listen. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Lazarus came out of the tomb all bound up in these linen cloths, his face wrapped up in another cloth. So if Mary were correct and the Jews had come to move Jesus' body, or if grave robbers had come in and plundered the tomb, the disciples would not expect to find the cloths at all. If you go to move the body, the linen clothes go with the body. There's no way on earth that someone would go to all of the trouble of moving Jesus' body and take the linen clothes off of the body. First of all, that would be really gross. Second of all, it would be a massive inconvenience, not worth the trouble. So... The fact that the linen cloths are lying here on the stone slab and there off to the side is the cloth which had been covering his face. These facts tell us something. These pieces of the puzzle tell us something. What does it tell us? Imagine John standing there outside the tomb looking at this scene. He cautiously follows Peter into the tomb and he sees the linen cloths lying there. The initial theory of someone moving the body has now been discredited. Why would someone leave the cause and 
leave them so neatly at that. Well, what option does that leave? For John, it leaves only one possibility. John says he saw and believed. Notice he saw the linen cloths. He did not see Jesus. This seeing and believing, not seeing and believing, seeing and not believing, this has kind of been a theme throughout the Gospel of John. We remember back in John chapter 6 and verse number 30, right after Jesus fed the 5,000, the Jews asked Jesus, It would help if I was in chapter 6 and not chapter 5. John 6, verse 30. The Jews ask, What sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? They ask. What sign do you show us that we may believe? In other words, faith requires a sign. Faith requires sight, they think. And Jesus goes on to rebuke that kind of faith. We also saw this theme in John chapter 9. John chapter 9 in verses 38 to 41, after Jesus healed the blind man, he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt, but now you say we see, your guilt remains there are those who see Jesus physically with their eyes, yet they do not believe. Just because you can see does not mean that you believe. John has shown us the opposite truth as well. That believing actually does not depend on seeing. For instance, back in John chapter 4 and verse number 50, Jesus told the man whose son was dying Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. This man believed without seeing, and he was blessed for his faith. And so it is with John. Here in John chapter 20, G John believes even though he doesn't see Jesus. He sees the evidence of the empty grave, and that is enough. John believes. But notice that John tells us not only that he believed after seeing the empty tomb, but he also tells us they did not yet understand the scriptures that he must rise from the dead. It's interesting. John wrote something similar way back in John chapter 2 and verse number 22. After Jesus had cleansed the temple, John notes that when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said these things. And they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. So basically the point is what we're seeing is resurrection hadn't even been on John's radar. He didn't even understand that this was the plan. He believed that it had happened because of the empty tomb. He did not understand that it had been foretold. Of course, we look back at texts such as our call to worship this morning from Psalms 16 you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor let your Holy One see corruption. Now, we read those words now, and we understand John, David wasn't talking about himself. David was talking about Jesus, his greater son. Really, we know that because 
Peter taught us that, right? Acts chapter 2. There's an element of mystery in the testimony of the Old Testament as to the resurrection. It's clearly there in the Old Testament, but until it happens, we, we wouldn't have been expecting it. As with so many other prophecies, it makes sense after it's been fulfilled, but beforehand, we're just not sure how it's going to actually work out. Now, don't get bogged down in the details here. John wants you to see something very important. Believing does not require knowing everything. Believing does not require understanding every nuance of the Old Testament. John says, on the one hand, he believed even though he didn't know. So many times as Christians, we become paralyzed in our lives because we don't know. We don't know. We don't know what to do. We don't have all of our questions answered. We don't know how things are going to work out. We don't know how things are going to happen. We don't understand everything that the Bible says about this, that, or the other thing. And so we feel crippled. We feel una absolutely unable to make any kind of a decision until we certainly know. But notice the example of John. John hasn't seen Jesus. John doesn't know the Scriptures. All he sees is an empty tomb and folded burial cloths. Yet this is enough. What he sees is enough, and he believes. He believes that the only thing that makes sense in this moment is that Jesus is alive. And this is good news for you as well. You don't have to know how in order to believe. You don't know how everything is going to work out in order to believe in Jesus and his plan for you. You don't have to have all of your questions answered before you obey Jesus and walk by faith. With whatever information you have, with whatever testimony you have from God's word, believe. Live your life in confident, obedient faith. Walk by faith and not by sight. John in our text this morning tells us not only that he had looked to Jesus in faith, he also tells us about Mary's look of love. Notice in verses 11 to 18, we read, But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have taken him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Arabic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Here, the writer is intentionally placing the stories of John 
and Mary side by side to show us what it looks like to look in faith. And he makes this really clear in an interesting way. Remember, all the way back in verse number 5, he wrote that John stooped to look in, and he saw the linen cloths lying there. Now, this word stooped is a rather unusual word. We don't encounter it very many times in the New Testament. It means exactly what it looks like it means. He stooped and looked in. It just happens to be the case that not very many people stoop in the New Testament. But interestingly, look at how he describes Mary, who as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. John records Mary doing the same exact thing that John had done minutes before. On the one hand, it's simply true that both John and Mary stooped to look into the tomb. But on the other hand, John is drawing our attention to this precisely to put these stories side by side and connect them so that we would see what it looks like to respond to this Jesus by faith. So what does Mary see when she stoops and sticks her head in and sees? She sees two angels in white. Notice the text, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, verse 12. One at the head and one at the feet. Now that's super interesting. Here's a flat slab on which the body of Jesus had been lain. Sitting at both ends are angels. One pastor wrote, It is as though the place where the body of Jesus was laid in the tomb has become the mercy seat in the most high place, overshadowed by cherubim on either side. Once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest of Israel took the blood of a slain bull and goat, entered the most holy place, and sprinkled the blood over the mercy seat to make atonement for the holy place, cleansing the tabernacle. Now these two angels stationed themselves at the fulfillment of the mercy seat, where the true blood of the atonement was sprinkled, sprinkled, blood that cleanses what the tabernacle and the temple symbolized the whole world. I confess, I don't know if that's exactly the picture that John was trying to paint for us, but to be very honest, it would make sense. It fits with John's theology. It fits with a lot of the themes that we have seen being drawn through the Gospel of John to this point. Either way, we see angels are guarding the presence of God. This is what they do. We see this in Ezekiel. We see this in Daniel. We see this in Revelation. Here, these angels are marking the spot where God has been at work. And then they ask a surprising question. Woman, why do you weep? It's perhaps more, less of an inquisitive question and perhaps more of a gentle rebuke in this context. Jesus has been announcing his death and resurrection. His people should have been believing. But Mary is heartbroken. And to be honest, let's not be too quick to judge. We can all imagine her sorrow in this hour. Many of you have been to the grave of a loved one not long after their passing. You go for closure. You go in some way to be close to them one more time. You know how Mary feels at this moment. And more than that, something is wrong in this moment. The body is gone. He's not there. Mary fears the Jews have further desecrated the body of her Lord, as though they had not desecrated him enough 
in his death. She just wants closure and comfort in this moment. You know how she feels. You yourself have felt that sorrow. But it's interesting, the angels do not sympathize. They deliver a message. Consider this, angels are messengers. That's literally what the word angel means, messenger. And so these angels say exactly what their Lord wants them to say, and they say it exactly when their Lord wants them to say it. They have a message, and they deliver this message verbatim. Woman, why are you weeping? That is exactly what their Lord wanted them to say. That is exactly what Mary needed to hear. And apparently Mary senses someone behind her at this moment. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. She did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Jesus, the master, says the same exact words which his messengers had just said. Woman, why are you weeping? This is a day of rejoicing. This is the day when death has been conquered by life. When light has shone through the darkness, shattering the night. The day has come. Woman, why are you weeping? Woman, whom are you seeking? What kind of a Messiah are you looking for, Mary? Do you seek a Messiah that you can understand? A Messiah who conforms to your idea of what a Messiah should look like? Or do you seek a Messiah who is resurrected? A Messiah not bound by the fragile cords of death, but revealed in all of his unbridled glory and power, exactly as was foretold in the pages of Scripture. Woman, Whom are you seeking? But Mary still doesn't understand. She is still in the grips of sadness and sorrow. Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you had carried him, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Jesus said to her, Mary. Jesus reveals himself to Mary. And what is the response of the Lamb of Jesus? She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Judging by Jesus' next words, at this point, Mary runs to Jesus and embraces him. Perhaps she falls at his feet, embracing embracing his feet. Her rabbi is alive. Her rabbi is here. Imagine how Mary feels at this moment. She lost her rabbi once, and she will never lose her rabbi again. And so she holds on to him for dear life. Notice Jesus' next words. Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. One pastor paraphrased Jesus' words in this way. You do not have to hang on to me as though I were about to disappear permanently. This is a time for joy and sharing the good news, not for clutching me as if I were some jealously guarded private dream come true. 
Stop clinging to me, but go and tell my disciples. Jesus' work is not yet done. The ascension is necessary. The resurrection of Jesus, the death of Jesus, these were necessary. He must now ascend to the Father. It is right for Mary to rejoice and believe and love her rabbi. But she must not hold on to him as though he will be physically with her and the other disciples perpetually from now on. Jesus' work is not yet complete. His ascension to the Father is necessary to complete all righteousness. Before we go on, consider the Messiah that you are seeking. Consider the Messiah you are looking to. Mary was at the tomb seeking the living among the dead. Though her grief was surely a grief of love, a grief of devotion, nevertheless, she was blinded by a grief for the wrong person. She was seeking a Messiah who was a powerful man of God, maybe a prophet, but a man nonetheless. A man who was murdered by the Jewish religious leaders and buried in a tomb. And yet the Jesus who stands before her is the God who dwells between the cherubim. The God who holds life and death in his hand as you hold a small pebble in yours. The Jesus who stood before her was the Messiah promised in Scripture. It is right for Mary to look to Jesus in love, but she must be looking to the right Jesus. Brothers and sisters, it matters what Jesus you are looking to this morning. There are all sorts of Jesuses out there who are clamoring for your attention and affection. So let me ask you the question that Jesus asks Mary. Whom are you seeking? Do you want a, a Messiah, a Jesus who conforms to your ideas about what a Messiah should be, about what a good person should be? Are you seeking a, a Jesus whose ethical standards meet up with your expectations? Or are you looking in affection to the resurrected Messiah who has revealed himself in his word? The Messiah who has ascended to the Father. Brothers and sisters, John wrote these words because he wants you to be looking to the right Jesus, the resurrected Jesus in committed love. And this is what he looks like. But Jesus finishes his conversation with Mary with a mission. He sends her on a mission. He says, go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. The message of, the, of Jesus to the disciples is simple and straightforward, and yet it is quite profound. If we are to be looking to Jesus in faith, if we are to be looking to Jesus in love, we are also looking to him in fellowship. Jesus says, go to my brothers. A couple months ago, we heard the astounding words of Jesus, which elevated the disciples from the level of servant to the level of friend. Do you remember that? That was a humbling, profound elevation. Imagine being called the friend of God. 
And yet, as though that weren't enough, listen to Jesus' words, go to my brothers. Not only has Jesus elevated you to the level of friend, now he has elevated you to the level of brother. He dares to call you brother. In a few months when we get to the letter of Hebrews, we're going to hear the profound proclamation in Hebrews 2.11, he is not ashamed to call those who are sanctified brothers. If you are looking to Jesus this morning, Jesus calls you to look to him not only in faith as the resurrected Messiah, not only in loving devotion as the ascended Messiah, he calls to you to look to him as your brother. Jesus goes on, Go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God, because of the death burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, we are now standing before the Father in Jesus himself. We have been joined with Jesus himself. And this relationship that we now have in Jesus with the Father is true spiritual flourishing. This is what we yearn for. This is what we were created for. Because of the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, we have what we were made for. We have fellowship with God as Jesus has. Today, because Jesus is not just resurrected but ascended, we are united with Christ. We are brought into the very fellowship of Jesus with the Father. This is Jesus' message for you if you believe. This resurrection text this morning describes for us what true faith looks like. What true faith in the resurrected Jesus looks like. Like Peter, we are to look to Jesus in faith, not by sight. Like Mary, we look to Jesus in loving devotion. We see him not as a conquered dead man, but as the conquering and living Son of God. We look to Jesus as our brother, the one who has ascended, the one who is interceding for us on our behalf precisely because he loves us. He is the one who is granting us his own fellowship with the Father. Do you seek Jesus this morning? Do you see him? This morning? Are you walking by faith this morning? If you're a Christian, are you so crippled by the choices and the decisions of life that you're unwilling and unable to commit to obedience to Christ? Do you know what it is to walk by faith and not by sight? Or are you looking for some sign? Are you looking for some experience? Are you looking for some voice in your ear or in your heart by which you can base your relationship with Jesus? Or are you willing to walk by faith in Jesus as he has revealed himself in his word and not by sight? Are you willing to walk by faith and not sight? Are you willing to follow Jesus and not know how it's all going to work out in the end? Perhaps you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. Kind of like Mary as she came into the garden on Easter morning, you imagine Jesus is a good teacher, but you feel let down by his death and disillusioned by his disappearance. 
Look this morning to the living Son of God. Listen as he calls your name and believe in him. He is alive for you. Believe in him. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is not ashamed to call you brothers and sisters. Not only does Jesus call you his brother or his sister, he has ascended. And he is your brother interceding before your father on your behalf. Do you hear the power of that promise? You have fellowship with God himself through Jesus. You have absolutely everything you need in Jesus. You have eternal life in Jesus. You have spiritual flourishing in Jesus. Trust in this Jesus for your life. Father, I thank you for your word.